Thank you, team. Thanks, Charlie. Probably a little tricky leading new songs, but we're getting there with that one. I'm sure it's going to be a favourite. Well, speaking of um, talking about things that some people don't want to talk about or at least find tricky to talk about, here we are again in the book of Revelation, continuing our series, The Big Reveal, Part 2. And um, it gets a bit real today uh, because we're talking about these charming guys. Um, The intent of this second section of the series, as I mentioned the week before last, I was away uh, last week, but I heard Graham did a great job of just talking a little bit further about the lamb and the scroll. Um, The intent of the series from here on really is to be a little bit more topical. So uh, we have kind of been progressing through the chapters of Revelation in order. uh, And actually, we're not going to discontinue that uh, today because it just so happens that whilst we were talking about Revelation 5 uh, last week, um, this week... I think we hit one of the topics that people are sort of most um, compelled by. Uh, If you were to sort of Google questions that people have about the book of Revelation, there's a good chance that there would be a question about uh, these four interesting figures. Um, And so... We're going, we're going to do two things at once. We're going to continue chronologically, but really get into, um, I think, a topic that we might have some questions about. So, that'll be fun. Uh, Sharon and I were in Bundaberg last weekend, and as we drove home on um, Monday night, I put on uh, an audio lecture uh, to listen to, to try and kill two birds with one stone. I thought that Sherilyn might sleep through it. It seemed like she wished that she did sleep through it uh, because it was some experts on uh, Genesis speaking about uh, the role of the spirit in the book of Genesis. Um, And I could tell that Sherilyn was awake uh, after a while and I could tell that she wanted to listen to some Shania Twain for a while uh, because she was making those kind of noises like, I've had enough two hours of people talking about ancient Near Eastern literature and uh, what those interesting chapters of the Bible that it opens with in Genesis mean. Uh, She was like, "We we need to shift gears here a little bit. So I stopped it and I said, you know, everything all right? And she said, yeah, it is, but it's just so weird. <laughs> She's like, Genesis, this makes me realise, is so, so weird. And I'm not sure if I'm encouraged when I hear actually what's going on, when I hear people, even though they love Jesus and they love Scripture, when I hear them going into the nitty-gritty of the book of Genesis, she's like, I feel really alienated by it. And um, I don't know if you've ever had that experience reading the Bible, being somewhat put at a distance from it, going to it (laughs) for encouragement, going to it because we expect to meet God there, uh, going to it because we're in need of a revelation of God. And then we get a story like uh, when we hit Genesis 6, that was a a part where Sherilyn was really uh, sort of um, sighing loudly, like, what is this thing about sons of God and all that kind of stuff? Or maybe when we reach a bit of the Bible like this, where there's these four kind of ghastly 
figures. Has anyone had that experience? You want the Bible to make sense. And then sometimes it's just hard to make sense of. Um, And so we had a bit of a chat about it. And I said, actually, I think what we're going through, when we have that experience, though it doesn't necessarily feel great, is a good thing. Because what's happening there is we're being confronted with the fact that Scripture actually comes from another world, right? I mean, sure, the same globe. uh, But what I mean is another time in history, another cultural context. Of course it's going to be weird. (laughs) And we can kind of make progress in understanding it. We can sort of step wisely through Scripture from that foundation of going, actually, this isn't the world that I live in exactly. Uh, If we assume... (laughs) that scripture is going to make sense to us instantaneously as 21st century Westerners, there's maybe actually a bit of a danger in that. (laughs) There's maybe uh, a better chance that we're going to come with some presumptions, some presuppositions. We've looked at that a little bit over the course of this series. At other points in history, people have assumed that Revelation is talking about their moment. And then a decade later, it looks like, yeah, maybe that was a bit of a silly reading. Maybe it wasn't your moment. So it's okay to feel slightly confused, slightly uncomfortable reading scripture. The intent of what we're doing with this big reveal series is actually just to try and, um, I mean, to, to make some sense of it, but actually to skill up on making sense of it. So we're trying to put some tools in your knapsack, so to speak, so that when you have a crack at it, when you go into the book of Revelation, it begins to make a little bit more sense. Hopefully, you realise it's coming from another context, but hopefully you've got some skills to do something about that. So we're going to do a little bit more of that today. I hope that sounds all right. Beginning here, first verses of chapter 6. So it says here, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Graham and I, we've been speaking about how extraordinary it is that John sort of settles in a way. I mean, he uses a a number of images of Christ, but here it's significant that he grabs the lamb, that he uses the lamb as the symbol of Christ. And the lamb opens these seals, which are sort of a way of speaking about the lamb, Christ's control over history, the fact that he is the one who has the authority to sort of see history play out. I watched the lamb open the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures, so these are these creatures around the throne where the lamb reigns and dwells. Uh, One of those creatures said in a voice like thunder, come, I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So the first of the seals on this amazing scroll with seven seals is opened and a horse appears before John. So what is going on with this white horse? What does... What might that mean to us? Did it mean something to people in the first century? Well, let's have a little bit of a look. The ancient world was full of omens. So it was a feature of culture. We're used to, if we're reading the Bible, the prophets often speaking about judgment that is to come. 
about sort of foreboding events which are to come. But that wasn't unique to Hebrew culture. The Romans did it as well. The Greeks did it. There were people who would speak symbolically about events that were to come of which people might need to take heed, might need to be aware. And I'm sure you can think about other kind of historical evidence of this where uh, a pronouncement is made, an omen comes. In the prophetic tradition... I'll try that completely again. The prophetic tradition of Israel, though, um, this image of four horses has a precedent. So here's an example of John paying his dues. We've used that language. He's standing in a prophetic tradition. And he's probably referencing Zechariah here. So in Zechariah 1... Zechariah is, he's kind of considering uh, the state of Israel at around about the time of the Persian Empire and he has this vision. During the night there was before me a man who was mounted on a red horse and he was standing amongst the myrtle trees in a ravine and behind him were red, brown and white horses. And what happens in Zechariah's vision is that these horsemen ride out and they cover the face of the earth, as it were. They, they, do, they scout what's going on in the world and they come back and they say, actually, all of the nations of the world are in relative peace except for God's people, Israel. And so Zechariah works through this prophecy about what is going on in Israel. That means God's blessing in the, in the form of peace is not dwelling there. Um, so, John is, is kind of vibing off that, it would seem. This idea that God's at work in the world, that he has a special plan for his people. One of the things that's going on with the white horse, and it actually says in the text that it is a symbol of conquest. A symbol of conquest. So, a conquering white horse with a rider. But whose conquest might be the question that comes to mind for us. Remembering that it's worthwhile for us to try and understand how the first hearers of this word might have thought about things. The rider on the white horse is described as having a bow and an arrow. The rider on the white horse is described as being an archer. Now, the world that these early church communities existed in, who received the letter that John wrote, which we call Revelation, was Rome, right? And I don't know what sort of picture you have of a Roman soldier, but it is probably not a soldier with a bow and an arrow. You might think of something a little bit more like this if you remember anything from high school history. This picture basically is the greater part of the military hardware which made the Roman Empire. You might remember the stories um, from high school history of times actually where Roman soldiers were locked in to that formation and chariots could actually ride over the top of them and people underneath would survive. What's with the archer? if this is the hardware that people in the Roman Empire would have been familiar with. Well, people other than 
the Roman Empire used bows and arrows. And particularly at the time that John is writing his revelation, a group of people called the Parthians. Now, this painting, I think, is really clever in the way that it depicts a reference to the Parthians. And it's got to do with the orientation of the rider as he rides that horse. The Parthians struck fear into the heart of Romans because they discovered, to their great woe, that they could ride forwards and shoot backwards. So the Roman uh, military sort of formations that were so good in defence would break after they had sort of broken up the oncoming attack of enemy people groups. And they would hope, actually, that they would turn around and flee eventually. And that's where Roman soldiers could mobilise and hunt down their uh, opponents and kill them. There was a famous incident from just not long before John's writing this letter where Roman forces came up against Parthians and they had skirmishes back and forward. Often the Parthians were successful uh, against, against the Romans. Uh, where Romans followed the Parthians on foot up a hill and then a barrage of arrows came down on them as the Parthians seemed to retreat. So to the imagination of a first century person in the Roman Empire, the Parthians were a picture of a sort of a foreign power. Uh, this, was a, this was an extremely scary picture. If you were going to die by a foreign warrior's technology or die by the attack of a foreign warrior, there was a good chance that your imagination went to a rider with a bow. There's that picture, uh, that image of a Parthian shooting backwards again. So it struck fear into the heart of Romans and people who lived in Rome at the time. Maybe a few little uh, things to sort of travel with considering what that first horse and rider might mean. Coming to the second, when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. So when we're thinking about this red horse, is there any information in this picture which comes either from scripture and the prophetic tradition or from the cultural and historic context that might help us to understand what's going on here? Over a hundred times in the Old Testament, the sword is an understandable picture of violence and bloodshed. One interesting thing to note about what happens through this red rider is that John says this rider has the power to take peace from the earth. Scholars have noted that in the midst of this violent bloodshed there is no reference to other nations. And so the suggestion might be is that what's going on here might be that John is seeing um, an image that his hearers would understand as an end to 
what they called the Pax Romana, which is Rome's peace for the world. So Rome really, for people who lived within the Roman Empire, covered the known world. There were enemies like the Parthians at the boundary. Um, but as far as they were concerned, these were fringe groups who were sort of on the margins of what was really going on because Rome, and it's a piece of propaganda, a bit like the type we might hear today during a time of war, Rome held the world in peace. Now, of course, we can bring some scepticism to that as Christians because we know that that was a peace which didn't really make room for Christians, didn't make room for lots of people. But the claim of the Roman Empire was, if you submit to us, there will be relative peace where you live. So what might it mean for there to be bloodshed within the Pax Romana? Many scholars have suggested that this is a picture for those hearers of a civil war, a situation in which, and this is a nightmare scenario, a situation in which brother and sister are at war with brother and sister, where peace within a society breaks down. It's not just about an enemy on our fringe, on our margin, an enemy who doesn't speak our language, an enemy who we can easily vilify because we don't understand them. It's about our own culture, divided. When the Lamb opened the third seal, John goes on to say, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wage and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, but do not damage the oil and the wine. Can I give you a few little tips maybe for trying to work out what's going on here? The scales were really a symbol of what happened in the marketplace. That's where most people in the first century would have seen scales. Of course, they are a symbol of justice almost universally. But the everyday experience that people had of scales, like the one that the third rider holds here, would have been in the marketplace because you went to trade and you traded oftentimes an amount of something that you had for a certain amount of something that you did not have. And it's interesting that John uh, sees reference here to two of the staple food sources in the world at the time, wheat and barley. So um, scholars tell us that two pounds of wheat stood almost as a shorthand for enough food for a day labourer to live on. Barley was a little cheaper than wheat, but again, this sort of stands for you can make enough bread for a day out of that amount of those grains. And so if you work for a day and have enough food for a day, to us that might sort of sound like we can survive, but people weren't just working to feed themselves, were they? <laughs> um, many people in the ancient world had many children. And so what John is seeing here is a picture of famine, a picture of scarcity and a picture of 
not enough. If the working can feed themselves, who feeds the little children, who feeds the widows, who feeds the women, who feeds the household servants and slaves. And this is often the way, isn't it? (laughs) That on the heels of war come famine. And it's interesting, though I'm not sure quite what you should do with it, that we're facing a wheat shortage right now, aren't we? We might be the equivalent of those labourers who have enough to eat, but we know, if we're listening to the news, that they're very worried about those in Africa, (laughs) those in the Middle East who might not find enough wheat at the market for them. Interestingly, sparing the oil and wine, as I looked into this, much of the grain that fueled the Roman Empire came from North Africa. What the Mediterranean is really good at producing is crops that sort of need to stay with their roots in the ground for years and years and years, like grapes and olives. So there might be some sort of disruption in this picture when it comes to the supply of grain. And yet this voice says, spare the oil and wine. So what is going on here is actually uh, a picture of not enacting a scorched earth policy. In some instances, a particularly vengeful enemy might come in and just burn your um, vineyards to the ground. They might hack down your olive trees. But for some reason here, John sees a picture of famine, but not a lack of hope for the future. Famine in a particular time, but not necessarily the end of all agriculture and civilization in that place. Going all right? This is kind of, uh, it is what it is, right? (laughs) Uh, There's a reason why we don't normally preach around this kind of stuff. Maybe we won't again. Uh, but I think I can, I can tell you're all tracking with me so far. So, yeah, I, ho- I hope it's somewhat interesting. Uh, we come to the fourth seal being opened. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, Come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Death and Hades are often pictured together in scripture. There's just a few references there. And... What's gone on in this picture, not just of the pale horse, but the four horses riding together, we've seen violent death by sword. The the white horse and the red horse speak to that. We've seen famine, which so often follows on the heels of warfare. And now what we're given with this fourth rider is a picture of pestilence and perhaps scavenging which again, in the ancient world, followed after warfare. 
In the modern world, it's true that pestilence still often follows on the heels. We might think of the Spanish flu, right? Having its uh, really getting the boot on um, from the World War. But people uh, in, in, in combat zones are often living in unsanitary conditions. There's often disruptions to the normal flow of life. There's mixing, you know, between one people group and another. There is, uh, you know, healthcare services and so forth are disrupted. There's an inability to, to handle um, disease when it takes off. There's lots of reasons in um, the prophetic literature of the Old Testament that the wild beasts might be put in there, but you can also imagine a battlefield in the ancient world, bodies left out. I mean, we're seeing some images like that come out of the Ukraine, aren't we? Sometimes it being days or weeks before the dead can be buried and, of course, rats and crows in a place like Ukraine, they come in and um, they feast on the destruction. So are you encouraged, like Sharon was encouraged, listening to uh, some deep stuff about Genesis? This is cheery. Cheery picture, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's good. It's good that someone, someone's getting into it. So, let's move on to the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, Sovereign Lord, how long, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched, John goes on, as he opened the sixth seal... There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The, the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? How long? That first section there from verse 9 talks about people under the altar, souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. When the hearers of this letter heard that, they would have been able to see real faces. <laughs> it's highly likely that when they thought about people who were slain because of the word of God and their testimony, highly likely that they would have seen 
the faces of loved ones. Interesting that John's vision of these writers potentially pertains to um, the peace of Rome being compromised because actually these Christians only really knew suffering (laughs) at the hands of Rome. Whether it was uh, an emperor called Diocletian or an emperor called Nero, and there's a bit of debate about who was the emperor at the time that this letter went out. Both of them incredibly cruel. Incredibly cruel. Nero, I've mentioned, is said to have hosted parties where the burning bodies of Christians were the light. (laughs) So tortures of human bodies for his revelers to feast by. Christians sent to, um, you know, the Colosseum to be killed in gladiatorial games or devoured by beasts there as a part of the spectacle. So you can understand when these first century Christians thought about what it meant (laughs) to follow Jesus, there was a lot of questions There was a lot of misery. There was a lot of suffering. And so where John says the souls of those have gone to their deaths witnessing to the joy and the love and the hope that Christ gives them. That was a a source of hope for them. Under the altar, we had a great conversation when Charlie was um, thinking about introducing the re-surrender song. She's like, the the language of climbing on the altar... (laughs) What do we think of that? Undoubtedly, it's kind of... So it says, what does it say about the altar? um, Does it say we are the altar? Something a little bit like that, Jen, yeah. But it is a funny image, like... Here we see it in John, though. If you think about the altar for first century Jews and their friends who'd come in as Gentiles into this sort of weird Jewish-y faith... The sacrifices that are made at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, blood (laughs) drips down. And so they're imagining the blood of that temple sacrifice dripping down to the place where the souls of the martyrs wait and call out, God, how long? How long will you let this go on for? When we started this series, we looked at the question of how soon. And both of these questions speak to an issue of timing, right? When we're suffering, there's a good chance that we cry out, how long, Lord? For many of us who, you know, are are fortunate, blessed, maybe fortunate not to suffer, directly as we witness to Christ. We might be interested in how soon. One of the interesting things about hitting the four horsemen is largely so far, I think I've managed to, not not intentionally, I just have been handling the scripture as I see fit, but largely I've managed to avoid the question of how long or how soon. And there's a good chance in a room like this, facing a topic like this, that's a question that's understandably on your mind. How long or how soon? 
I mentioned, and I'm not going to labour this because, frankly, it can be a bit boring, but there's a number of understandings of the timing of what John was seeing within the church. So there are Christians who read the book of Revelation and they feel the evidence points to it actually all taking place, the events that are prophesied in John, all really largely taking place in the first century. So they see the destruction of the temple as, um, as, a, as a, the key event of Revelation. Um, there are other Christians, and maybe you're more familiar with this, there's often been a connection between um, sort of popular evangelicalism and this view. Other Christians for whom it always means our soon. So the preterist view is their soon, the hearers of the original letter. The futurist view is our soon. And um, I put Hal Lindsay up there because he's probably a common example of it. But somewhat unfortunately for, for Hal, it's always been in three to five years' time. And it sells a lot of books, if you can say, it's in three to five years' time. Somewhat um, astoundingly, if it's not that for predictions not fulfilled, you can still sell a lot of books the next time you sort of issue a brief apology about why you got it wrong and why you need to go again. Anyway, just a, a little bit of cynicism there, but there are um, many Christians who have a scholarly um, and well-considered reason for thinking it's about our soon. There has been another position, and most of the reformers hold to this. I've got a picture of John Calvin and Charles Wesley up there. For them, soon was any time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And then the fourth major position is one, uh, and I've put a picture of Karl Barth there. Many people feel like he sort of saved the church from a sort of liberalism in the 20th century. He said there's this sense in which it's always soon, that, that God's people are, are sort of always in touch with the second coming. Not to say that the second coming is not happening, but the point isn't a particular moment in time. There is going to be a particular moment in time, but there's something about Christ's coming that is significant, something about Christ's coming soon that will always be significant for Christians. For what it's worth, our movement, the ACC, we could actually hold any of those positions. Um, there are nuances within each of them, um, but you could even be a pastor in this movement and hold any of those positions because all we have to uh, agree on is that we believe in and look forward to the imminent personal return of Jesus Christ to gather his people to himself and to judge the living and the, de and the dead. We need to agree on his kingdom having no end. Just to go back to this section as we come close to closing, and I'm going to get the band up in a minute. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they maintained. You know, in the Old Testament, 
prophecy of foreboding, a prophecy of foreign powers coming against God's people was always, was always an opportunity for God's people to repent. Foreign nations invaded Israel because Israel had lost their way. (laughs) Foreign nations invaded Israel because Israel was not being who God had called them to be. Go check it out. (laughs) Read the prophets. Come back to me if you can find a different example. And so I think John's revelation, whether it was heard by Christians in the first century or whether it's heard by us here in the 21st century, has to speak the same message. If this is particularly bad news to you, because you have no hope beyond it, if you're not being the person of God that God has called you to be, turn back to Jesus. Resurrender. The other main point that I wanted to finish with, and I might get the band on stage if that's all right. So we, there's a call to surrender here. There's a call to align ourselves with God. The other big point. It makes sense, as, as kind of confronting an image as it is, it makes sense that those who had been taken too soon were under the altar, <laughs> covered in blood. I mean, it's a picture, right? It's, it's figurative, I think. But who is the one who was worthy to open these seals? The little lamb, right? The little lamb. The God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the one who is in control of time. Revealed as the one who would, for love's sake, give himself away. Who, in the face of violent empire didn't respond by upping the stakes (laughs) he didn't say I got a bigger gun, I got better equipment he didn't crush the enemy by playing the enemy's game he killed death by for love's sake submitting himself to it and overcoming it and the gospel the good news of scripture, the good news even of a weird and bloody passage like this is that sacrifice means that we also can live not afraid of death but assured of resurrection. We also can be those who bravely by the power of the Spirit stay faithful to God's word
It's one thing that I wonder if you noticed about this painting. Right at the top, over it all, the lamb. There's one thing that we need to continue to put front and centre or top and centre as we read the book of Revelation. Is that there will be suffering. (laughs) There will be bloodshed. It may very well seem like it seems to those Christians in the first century. Like following Jesus was a mistake. (laughs) John wants to remind us that's just how God does it (laughs) because he loves the world. He loves the world. Hold fast. That Saturday we celebrated recently where Jesus was in the tomb. That moment where Jesus' disciples should have been most abject and would have been most abject. Would have most felt their hopes dashed. Would have most questioned the future probably written it off what was he doing conquering death conquering death holy God I personally am grateful that uh, the Bible's not always easy I'm grateful that it's an opportunity for us to grow I'm grateful even that we can have a variety of understandings of some things like this and you'll still be our God. (laughs) You'll still outwork your plan. There's still good news. Might have slightly different flavours. There's still good news. The good news that doesn't change from one true Christian to another that you love us. That you died for our sins. That you have a good plan.